Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. It is my great pleasure to be joined in our studios by the Republican candidate for governor in what is shaping up as one of the most expensive and I think one of the closest races, if not the closest race in the country, Tim Michaels. Tim, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Jeff, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me on today, and uh, hello to everybody out there. It's a beautiful fall Wisconsin day. Enjoy it while it lasts, right? And you have been all <laughs> over Wisconsin. I mean, I, just looking at your schedule, it just I get tired just looking at all the different places you've been. Uh, you know what? I love it. I really do. And my, my wife, Barbara, goes almost everywhere with me as well. We're really enjoying crisscrossing the state. We've been everywhere from Superior down to Kenosha, from Sheboygan to La Crosse, Fond du Lac, Wausau, everywhere in between. The response has just been incredible. It's very enthusiastic. It really helps energize me and, and my wife and the campaign. What we're hearing out there is people are ready for a change. They're frustrated with the direction of government. They're frustrated with the weak leader that we have as governor right now. And uh, that, that certainly helps. So it, it's a beautiful time of year to be all over the state. But we're, we're putting in a lot of miles. I'm making three or four stops a day minimum. On a good day, we'll do seven or eight. I, I want to use the opportunity to talk to you about a number of issues, including maybe some that, that don't get the attention that others do on, on the ads and stuff. I, I want to start off talking about the, the COVID response. Um, I, I was talking to friends of mine who own a, own a jewelry store in um, Dodge County. And once COVID hit, Tony Evers shut them down. And so they couldn't operate. But the Walmart at the end of town that sells watches and sells jewelry, that, that, was, that was operating. And they just thought it was just incredibly unfair. If we look back at Evers' response to COVID, did he handle it right? And if not, what would you have done if you were governor? Well, let me start off by giving you a little background on what we did at Michaels Corporation during COVID. So we were deemed essential because 85% of our business is energy infrastructure. So, uh, of course, uh, we have to keep the power on. I have a saying, two things need to happen during a pandemic. One, you need food on the shelves at the grocery store. And two, the power has to come on. Maybe this day and age three, you need Amazon, but uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we we were deemed essential. We never stopped working, and my brothers and I, I remember the meetings very clearly in spring of 2020. What are we going to do with our office personnel? Well, we said, you know what? Our, our men and women, they have to go to the job site. You can't pour concrete from home. You can't weld pipe from home. Uh, you, you have to be on the job site. So we have to lead by example. And we had everyone get back into the office as quickly as possible. And hindsight? Hindsight's 2020. That was the right decision. Uh, it was very strong for our culture. It was very strong for the company. It worked for our customers. If I am governor, when I am governor, every business will be deemed essential. Every worker will be deemed essential. Governor Ebers, he, he provided weak leadership on COVID. Uh, it, it was scattered, as you just said, in, Jeff, in, in what the response is. One business was deemed to be able to stay open. Another business had to be closed down. There was really no rhyme or reason. It did not make any sense. What I hear from people everywhere I go, business owners, they want 
something that is consistent. They want something that is predictable. They want to know that government is going to be there for them. And I am a businessman. I know that the hardworking people that are entrepreneurs in this in this state, that they are the driver of our economic engine. I will stand with businesses, and I'll stand with hardworking families as well in this state. That That's what we need in, in leadership. That's what people want from their governor. They want to know that they can go to work and that their businesses are going to stay open. And also on that note, that schools are going to stay open as well. We've, I, we could talk about that. There's a tremendous gap right now two-year gap in learning out there that is going to rear its ugly head someday when we have too many young men, young women, boys and girls that have had such poor education over the two-year period of COVID where they were learning from home and they were masked up at school. So uh, well, that I'm going to move forward. My, well, that was going to be my follow-up. I mean, what would you have done differently? Because you're right. I think we're now starting to see that the long school shutdowns just did not work, at least as far as the educational thing. So what would you have done differently? Well, I would have provided bold leadership, Jeff. And and what I mean by that is uh, it's easy to just run through life fearful and say worst case scenario could happen. But we, we need to have a leader that will stand up and say, we have to educate our kids. We have to have our economy open. We have to have businesses open and working. People need to go to work. Everybody sitting at home is not healthy. And I, I not only mean that it's not healthy for our economy and not healthy for our state, but it's not healthy for people. It's it's physically unhealthy to, to sit at home all day, and it's uh, psychologically unhealthy to sit at home all day. I believe that work is good. I believe work makes you feel good. You get a satisfaction from work, and it's another initiative that I'm going to have as governor. We are going to get rid of what I call the sofa class. We created an entire class of lazy people during covid People were paid to sit at home, sit on the couch, sit on the sofa. They did it all day, and they had the unemployment check, and they had the stimulus check. And I think somebody said that they could make about $45,000 doing nothing at home. Well, the stimulus dollars have now dried up, but they, they got lazy, and they're content to just sit at home and live off of unemployment. I'm going to change that. Right now, you get 26 weeks of unemployment. That meaning 26 weeks to find a new job. Everywhere I go in this state, I see help wanted signs. Business owners are like, we need more people. It does not take 26 weeks to find a job. It probably takes about 2.6 days. So we are going to end the SOFA class. We're going to get more people back to work. It's healthy for their person. It's healthy for our economy. It's good for the state of Wisconsin. As long as we're talking about education, I know one of the big differences between you and Governor Evers is your approach to to schools in general. Let's talk about school choice and where that fits in if you're governor. Yeah, so right now uh, we have failing schools in Wisconsin. What, what do I mean by that? Barbara and I visited a school just, just north of here, uh, St. Marcus, a private school, doing wonderful things, great test score numbers. The headmaster at that school, he said, Tim, the school a block and a half up the street. Je- Jeff, that's uh, you know less than half a mile from where we are right now. The school a block and a half up the street, the reading comprehension score at that school is zero. Zero. That means not a single kid in that entire school can read. Reading is the foundation to all learning. Reading is the foundation to learning writing and arithmetic. Reading is the foundation to learning math and science. Reading is the foundation to being a productive member of society, to being able to get a job. We are completely failing these boys and these girls if they can't read. So there's nowhere to go but up. We have to do something drastic. We have to do, we have to do a, a, a big change. I am for universal school choice. What is that? That empowers parents. Right now, 
tuition dollars are attached to a building. They're attached to an administration. And there's no one to be held accountable there. Parents show up at a school board meeting, and they're given the stiff arm. They're given the cold shoulder. The educrats say, we know how to best educate your sons and daughters. Well, if a parent says, I don't like what you're teaching or how you're teaching, they don't have any standing. But by parental school choice, they will have standing because those tuition dollars will go with their sons and daughters to the school of their choice. This creates competition. Competition? Competition is a great motivator. In our business, if we're not innovating every day, we're losing. In our business, if we're not trying to figure out how to better serve our customer, our customers are going to go somewhere else. Well, the customers are families. The customers are parents. The customers are sons and daughters, the future leaders of Wisconsin. That's who we need to cater to. And I'm going to empower parents through universal school choice, bring competition into the education marketplace. We have nowhere to go but up when we have schools with a reading comprehension score of zero. So that's a very important initiative. Governor Evers, his his uh, solution, just throw more money at it, you know, millions more. It's ridiculous uh, 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 that that is always the answer for the liberals, for the left. More money, more money, more money. That is not a business approach. That is not how I'm going to operate as governor. I'm going to be a tremendous steward of the people's money, the taxpayers' money. I'm going to be a fiscal conservative. We are going to get government more efficient, more effective. It's what people want, and they deserve to have a leader and a governor who will do that. Tim Michaels, let's take a very quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about something that's become a major issue in the race. That is crime, parole, Kenosha, all those. We'll take a quick break. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Welcome back. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We are joined in the studio by Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels. Tim, uh, let's talk about the, the issues of crime. First of all, you know, Tony Evers made no secret of the fact that he wanted to – he bragged about how he was going to reduce the prison population by 50 percent. Now, it seems to me there's only two ways you do that. One is you don't send as many people to prison, and then secondly, you release people that are in prison. That, that's the only way that you can do it. Let's talk about that second aspect first, the, the parole. This has become a, a huge issue. Where has the Evers administration gone off the tracks, in your opinion, with regard to parole? Well, you're, you're right, Jeff. Uh, Governor Evers, he made a campaign pledge four years ago. He's going to cut in half uh, the prison population, and he's well on his way to doing it. At the end of 2021, so you know, that was nine, nine months ago, uh, he had released almost 900 convicted felons on early parole. The shocking part, 270 of them were or are convicted murderers, attempted murderers, and some of those were cop killers. And here, here's the really devastating news. 44 of them are child rapists. Tony Evers and his parole people have released them early, and they are on the streets of Wisconsin today. Why anyone, Tony Evers, any liberal left person, thinks that releasing so many criminals early is a good thing for Wisconsin? I'll tell you, everywhere I go, Jeff, all across the state, people are really, really uh, fired up about, about crime. They want a change. They do not like this coddling of criminals. They don't like these catch-and-release DAs letting these bad guys out on the street the next day. They want somebody who's going to stand with law enforcement. They want, to, they want their person, they want their family, and they want their property to be protected. That's not what's going to happen when you release uh, nearly 900 convicted felons early on parole. How did we get to this spot? I believe that it is a byproduct of the defund the police movement. Jeff, you know, crime came down in America— 
for the past 30 years until two years ago. I think it's because of technology, uh, cameras everywhere, uh, forensic testing, DNA testing. Crime went down and down, which, which is great. It's what we want. But all of a sudden, two years ago, there was a tremendous spike in crime. And I believe it's a byproduct of the defund the police movement. How we got to this crazy spot in America where less police is better or cops are bad. We're seeing what's happening because of that that cultural movement. We're seeing a huge spike in crime. We're at a 30-year high in crime in Wisconsin. Uh, Violent crime, 30-year high. Murder, 30-year high. This has to change. I'm going to change that through proper leadership. Every man and every woman in law enforcement is going to know that the governor himself wore a uniform, albeit a military uniform, for 12 years on active duty as an Army Ranger. But they're going to know that I back the blue, and I'm going to let them do the job that they're trained to do, to enforce the law, to treat people with respect. These catch-and-release DAs, I'm going to fire them. Why? Because people do not want these bad guys out on the street the next day where it's proven that they're committing new crimes almost immediately, like happened with the Christmas parade with Daryl Brooks. So I'm going to be tough on crime. We're going to get rule of law back here in the state of Wisconsin. It's what people want. It's what people deserve. To that end, one of the huge problems in in southeastern Wisconsin in general, and Milwaukee in particular, is car thefts. And one of the things that we're seeing is thousands and thousands of cars stolen, and about 50% of the people who get caught turn out to be 16 and under. And it's this juvenile justice system that appears to be completely out of whack where kids steal three and four cars a day, get caught, and then they're released a day or two later. Um, would you be willing to look at some major reform of the juvenile justice system to provide what I'm going to describe as maybe a little more accountability for the the repeat criminals that are out there? Yeah, and, you know, I saw the Kia Boys video. Uh, you know, they, they went out, a journalist went out and found these I, I call them knuckleheads. They're 15-year-old uh, inner-city youths that are stealing all these cars. And they said, why are you guys doing this? And they said, because nothing's going to happen to us. We're going to get away with it. We, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago about the criminals feel emboldened. The bad guys feel like nothing's going to happen to me. Absolutely, I will look at a, a, a complete makeover of the, of the juvenile criminal system. Uh, why? Because it's what people want. One car stolen every hour, every day, 365 days a year here in Milwaukee. You know who's really concerned about that besides the people that live in Milwaukee? Business owners in Milwaukee are concerned about it. Restaurant owners are concerned about it. Sport franchises are concerned about it. Nobody wants to go down to town Milwaukee because they're afraid when they come out of the restaurant, when they come out of whatever they're doing, the sports game, that their car is not going to be there. I am not going to coddle criminals Tony Evers, you know, he, he's coddling criminals. He wants to give them a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance. I'm a good Christian man. I'm for everybody getting a second chance. But when we have a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance, that means that there's a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh crime that's being committed. And most importantly, there's a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh victim of those crimes. The governor, and I will as governor, stand up for the hardworking, taxpaying, law-abiding citizens of Wisconsin. We will get crime down. I will say it in my general election victory speech, and I will say it in my inaugural speech. I'm going to talk directly to the bad guys that there's a new sheriff in town, if you will. You're not going to get away with it anymore. If you're not willing to do the time, then don't do the crime. And I believe we can flip that switch, that switch that flipped two years ago when we moved towards defund the police and cops are bad. We can flip that switch back to law and order, and people can feel safer in their communities, safer in their homes, and safer when they're out with their families. Tim, to that end, I know as part of your your campaign, and this hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but 
you've been making a, a real concerted effort to reach out down here in Milwaukee County. And you're, I, I know you're, you are regularly down here talking to you know, different groups. Yeah, I, I, and I love it, Jeff. And why do I love it? Because I feel that the people in the inner city of Milwaukee are being underserved by the political class in Madison. I am going to be a governor for all the people of Wisconsin, from 20th and National all the way up to Superior. I say 20th and National. I was there last evening. We were there probably about 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. Uh, I was talking to people in the neighborhood, uh, talking to people standing on their front porch, sat there with them for 15, 20 minutes at each stop and, and, and listened to them, listened to their concerns. Uh, I'm, I'll work with anybody, anybody to fix the crime problem. But a governor has to understand what the frustrations are, what the concerns are of the people. So I, about every week I'm on the south side of Milwaukee. About every week I'm on the north side of Milwaukee. Uh, been up in Harum Bay, uh, everywhere. I'm, I'm going to be a governor for all the people of Wisconsin, and I will work with anybody. I'll work with the Democratic mayor of Milwaukee, Cavalier Johnson. I'll work with the Democratic county executive of Milwaukee County, uh, David Crowley. I, I'm going to move above the partisan divide. I'll never ever compromise my conservative principles. But like Tommy Thompson, and Tommy Thompson has endorsed me, I talk to him frequently on this campaign trail, Tommy Thompson knew how to get things done. People loved it that Tommy Thompson rose above the partisan divide. That's what I'm going to do as well. Why? Because the people in the inner city of Milwaukee are suffering right now. They're suffering with a huge spike in crime, and they're suffering with terrible education. I'm going to fix all of that. Tim, we're kind of running out of time, but I, I, there's one more issue I want to touch with on before I have to let you go, or you left to let me go because of your schedule. I, I want to talk about taxes. Um, see the reports. You you are apparently open to taking a whole revamp of the state of Wisconsin tax system, maybe even moving towards a flat tax. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm going to do three things as governor. I'm going to put more money in people's pockets. I'm going to reduce crime, and I'm going to improve education. How are we going to put more money in people's pockets? We're going to do a massive tax reform package here in the state of Wisconsin. Right now, the people of Wisconsin, they're overtaxed. How do we know that? There's a $5.4 billion billion projected surplus in the state budget. Tony Evers is running around saying that's a good thing. Me, as a fiscal conservative, as a businessman, I say that's a bad thing. That means that the hardworking people of Wisconsin have been overtaxed by $5.4 billion dollars. I want to put that money back in the people's pocket. Let them spend that money where they want to spend it, on new washers and dryers or cars or goods and services. That will help this economy get cooking, as we say in the military, get this economy cooking on jet fuel. So I'm going to sit down with the smart tax people. I'm good at math. I'm a businessman. I can read a balance sheet. I can read an income statement. We are going to figure out the lowest level that we can get taxes to here in Wisconsin. Why is that good? Not only is it put more money in people's pockets, but it also is good for attracting new businesses to the state of Wisconsin. It's good for young people that are graduating from college, staying here in the state of Wisconsin. It's for maybe veterans that are getting out of the service saying, I'm going to go to Wisconsin now and work because I hear it's a great place to live, a great place to raise a family. This state has so much potential. I love Wisconsin. We have hardworking people here. We have a great work ethic. It's a great community. It's a great place to live. We need to have a governor that is going to make it better for the people in Wisconsin. I am going to put more money in their pocket. I'm going to lower crime, have safer communities, and we are going to have better schools in the state of Wisconsin. 
Tim Michaels, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Four and a half weeks till Election Day. Hope we can chat again sometime Absolutely. between thanks, now Jeff. and then. Have a great day, everybody. We're going to take Thank a you. quick break. Uh, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Uh, today is an off day in the trial of State of Wisconsin versus Daryl Brooks. Daryl Brooks is, of course, the man who is accused of killing six people in the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre and injuring dozens and dozens of more. As we've talked about before, uh, Brooks is, I think, an attention seeker. That is my opinion. Um, In addition to everything else, he's fired his attorneys. And after much back and forth, the judge has, at least for the moment, her name is Jennifer Doro, um, is given her the permission to represent himself. As you might expect, that's kind of turned the proceedings, at least so far, into a bit of a circus. That being said, a jury has now been seated, and opening statements will start uh, tomorrow. Our very own Alex Crow has been in the Waukesha courtroom for the last two days, and Alex, I wanted to ask you to stick around. And is is it unfair to describe the proceedings at least partially as a circus over the first two days? I think that's the word that a lot of people have uh, been using for this so far. And uh, look, it, it's been pretty much living up to exactly what we thought it was going to be when Daryl Brooks first said he was going to represent himself. You know, he he kept using the term sovereign. Yesterday, the judge called him a sovereign citizen, and he said, "No, I'm sovereign." And Right. Look, doing some research into the sovereign citizen movement, essentially what they do is try and clog up these court proceedings. That's what he's done. He's kept repeating Judge Doro to ask her name. I don't know if his goal there is to get her to like slip up and say that it was her who brought the charges instead of the state. He kept saying he didn't understand how the state could be an entity because it's state of Wisconsin right. versus Daryl Brooks. Looking for these little things that he thought that he could see as legal loopholes. But Judge Dora was having none of it and kept sending him into timeout, basically, into this other courtroom. Yeah, this whole sovereign thing, and I'm I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole, but it's kind of like the modern equivalent. Years ago, we had people who were the the trilateral commission and stuff like that. It's just kind of the the latest thing. So he he has been in and out of the courtroom because he refuses to behave, right? Yeah, and it's really been hurting his defense because he doesn't have any attorneys. At first, he said, you know, before we could even get jury selection underway the first day, he said he didn't have enough time to review the material. They actually zoomed in his previous attorneys who said, hey, we turned everything over on Wednesday night. The jail administrator took the stand and said, I gave him the stuff on Thursday. It blew up his argument, but it took half a day to get there. And that was ultimately, I think, what he wanted. So as we go forward now, he's going to be representing himself, but it's been hurting him And when it comes to jury selection, you and I were talking off the air. There was one juror in particular, I thought, who was a West Dallas police officer. And very clearly, anybody could say, hey, that's someone you could pretty easily strike and say, you're too close to something like this. You know, several police officers, you were, you know, people who were working in hospitals the night of. And he just didn't participate whatsoever. And that really, I think, will hurt him in the long run. Well, well, to that end, the the way jury selection works is, in this case, all the jurors that they brought in, there'd been some degree of pre-screening. But then there are questions that are are put to him. You call X number of jurors and then start asking them questions. And the the attorneys are entitled to to ask questions as well. Now, he, he ended up not questioning any of the jurors, right? 
Yeah, he just sat in a different room and looked like he was preaching for a while from what we later found out was a paperback Bible he was standing, and uh, it was really strange. But you're right, they make these these jurors go through a pre-screening process, and then when they came in there, they asked them very specific questions. They didn't want to know their names, but the judge wanted to know, what is your occupation? What's your spouse's occupation? Do you have any children? And right there, there are a lot of things that could be seen as emotional ties to this case and struck, and that jury proceeding could have lasted for several more days with 300-plus prospective jurors. We only got through 80 of them before getting our final 12 and then the four alternates because he just refused to take part in this entire process. So how did, I mean, what, what typically happens is you, you get to a point where you have a certain jury pool, a certain number of jurors who have, have gotten past the point of being able to be struck for cause mm-hmm. because of bias or whatever, and then typically what happens is the prosecutions gets... X number of what they call peremptory strikes, and Mm -hmm. the defense gets X number of peremptory strikes. Now, my understanding is he chose not to use any of his peremptory strikes. So how did they handle that? It was basically the same way he had done it throughout. And so when they would say, okay, um, even the state and the judge offered up six yesterday, six people who said that I've already made up my mind, he's guilty, I'm not going to be independent. We're going to strike them. The people who said that they could not sit there for an entire month because of work or whatever undue burden it would cause on them, they were then sent away. But they kept asking Brooks, is there anything that you would like any number of these jurors to be struck for? And he said, I want them all struck. And they were like, we're not going to take that seriously. We're going to move on. So then it came down to, you're right, there were 36 jurors and they said each side will get 10 strikes. Daryl Brooks, would you like to make the first? I want them all gone. They were like, that's not going to happen. So we're just going to take that as a, you're just choosing not to partake in this the same way they had throughout the entire jury selection process. So what did they do? Then they just struck somebody randomly? Is that how it worked? Yes, it was actually like pulled from a lot. They they, they pulled these 10 numbers. They were struck randomly, and that's how they ended up uh, using Daryl Brooks' 10 strikes. And the prosecution got its 10 strikes that Mm -hmm. it wanted to do regardless. You see, one of the things that I think people misunderstand about jury selection is that they— they weren't looking for someone who had never heard about the case because if you never heard about the case, you, you've you've lived in a cave somewhere. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. And so what they're looking for is people who, despite what they've heard about the case, believe that they can honestly decide the guilt or innocence of the defendant based on the evidence that's presented in the courtroom. That was a follow-up question to everything that Judge Doro asked yesterday. You have children. Do you think that you could still be impartial here in this case? Obviously, everyone knew about this case. Who here has heard about Daryl Brooks before? Every single hand shot up, and then we had to go through every single one of them saying, yes, I can be, no, I can't be. I was taking notes as to the ones that said no, but that's essentially where we got. And it was interesting to me that there were even some healthcare workers that uh, maybe not have been inside that specific children's hospital or something the night of, but you could make the argument, hey, they know people who are in it. They would be too close. And again, he just chose not to participate in that. I think that this jury is uh, is definitely working out against his favor right now because he chose not to participate (laughs) in it. Yeah. Well, okay. And so I I know at one point there was conversation about maybe having him gagged or something in the courtroom. And the judge, in my opinion, made a wise decision that that's not happening. So when he acts out, they, they they bounce him to this other room. An additional is it, a, is it a different courtroom with a closed circuit on it? Yeah, it's essentially like a 21st century version version of this. The judge kept referencing a case, Illinois v. Allen, where she said that gave her legal precedent to have him gagged if she wanted to. But she also said that would obviously not look great, right? Like gagging Daryl Brooks in this courtroom, especially an all white right. jury right there, it just wouldn't look very good. So she said instead she's sending him to this separate courtroom. He's got, I think, three deputies who are in that courtroom with him. So he has 
physical humans in there, but it's just keeping an eye on him. His microphone is muted until she decides that it's his turn to talk and she can unmute him, but uh, he will not be able to talk. He still is able to be seen, though, which is something the jury is going to have to take into account. If he's standing there preaching, refusing to listen or part, take part and, and making a mockery of it, the jury's going to see that this time around. They didn't see that during the selection process. Well, to that point... Um Tomorrow is when the the trial proper starts. The the jury has now been selected. So it'll start with the prosecution because they have the burden of proof giving their their opening statement. And then Daryl Brooks gets an opportunity to address the uh, normally you would do it through your attorney and you can either, you know, hold back until the end of the prosecution's case or you can address the jury right away. But if he chooses after the prosecution's opening statement, Daryl Brooks is going to get a chance to say whatever he wants within limits, I guess, to the jury. Yeah, that's what we're all wondering what he's going to say. I personally think he's going to say what he said this whole time. He's immediately going to say this court has no authority. Ask the judge her name until she kicks him out. It's going to be the same type of thing. But I think it's going to be important that the prosecution kind of focuses on the victims. It's going to be a heavy, heavy opening day tomorrow because the focus, whether we want to or not, has been on Daryl Brooks. For the past few days, look at the shenanigans that he's doing. Look at all this stuff that's right. going on. And uh, the, the prosecution is going to have to open it and really bring that back down to these are the people who were lost in this. This is what the focus is. It's going to be I, th- I think it's going to be a very emotional day right off the bat tomorrow. Well, and that's I mean, that's one of the other things that's going on, Alex, is that Brooks acting as his own attorney has he will have the ability to question the the victims to question victims families he'll have an opportunity to cross-examine them which just again opens this up for i mean if you want to talk about like concerns for the victims and not exploiting them you know who knows what this guy will do if given the opportunity yeah i think he's willing to exploit every loophole and i think he he's been doing some online research right you can clearly tell that he's reading from pre these are yeah, questions the that you're supposed stuff. to yeah. ask, things that like if you're representing yourself or if you think you're sovereign. So I don't know if he's specifically going to go at these victims in that way, but I could definitely see him asking things. Did you see me specifically behind the wheel of this car? That type of thing where he could, in his mind, try and drive a wedge of doubt in there. I just don't know how well it's going to work, especially if the jury sees him spouting off as as he's done pretty much every single step of the way in court up to this point. Yeah, well, as we've talked about before, I, I'm not sure. I, You know, I, I, you're the news guy. I'm going to step back. I mean, this is, when I was a prosecutor, we'd call these things slow guilty pleas. I mean, it, it's not, it, it's really not, in this case, what happened and, and who committed this and all. So, I mean, I think the result is preordained. I, I think what's going on here is that you have a guy who clearly enjoys the attention that he is getting and is... Um, just kind of milking that that 15 minutes of fame or notoriety or infamy or whatever you want to call it for as, as long as he can. We, we saw um, previously we heard from Daryl Brooks's mother who had said this man is not mentally well. He should not be doing this, basically. And uh, Daryl Brooks removed her from his witness list yesterday. It was like, I'm not going to call her. The defense had essentially planned on calling her and saying, hey, Daryl Brooks isn't right. He's getting rid of that. I think you're right. I think he's moving more towards the like, this is me type thing, but it's being dragged out. I, I talked to a former prosecutor and said, why would you possibly continue to drag this out? And he essentially said, county lockup is a heck of a lot nicer than the state lockup yeah. in Waupon. And why not? You get all the access. 
privileges. You get internet when you get to look up stuff for your case. He gets a tablet in his cell while he's representing himself. So you're he does have right. more you're, freedom yeah, while well, representing well, himself. Well, you're just, you're just not going anywhere. I mean, it, 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 this will be ultimately conviction. There will be multiple sentences, life in prison without parole. So it, it there's really, it's like a nothing to lose thing. So it's like, okay, this is, we'll, we'll do this now and just see how much disruption we can cause. And then, you know, maybe we can try to create an issue for appeal. It sounds like the judge is very conscious of that and is is trying to do all she can within the, the framework and the parameters of the problem she has to make sure you don't create an appellate issue. Yeah, it's interesting also watching from the law perspective, right, when he'll have an outburst and she'll try and form that into some sort of record or motion for him. Be like, okay, you're 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 trying to dismiss all of these jurors. Obviously, it's a tactic, but I'm making a motion of that. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss that motion. That There's all these legalities right. they still have to go through with every single one of these outbursts. Right. And are you, are you going to be back out there tomorrow? I am, yeah. So uh, okay. Except for when he gets removed. It's interesting. Every time he gets kicked out, they kick us out first, then they move him, then they bring us back in. So I've been getting my steps in this week. I've been in and out of that courtroom at least a dozen times. Alex Crow, thanks for all your efforts. Let's take a quick break. A number of people asking various questions about the, the Brooks... Um, case. And I think, you know, there, there's there's really nothing more to say about this. I mean, you have a guy who is objectively guilty. Like I say, we describe this as a slow guilty plea. I mean, there, there's no question about his guilt. There's no, I, I believe, defense. The defense initially tried to raise a, a what we would call the insanity defense, and they couldn't find people that would support the idea that he was insane in the sense of the law. Now, obviously, Daryl Brooks is a sociopath, in my opinion. So it's nobody in their right mind does what he did, but that's not the test in in the law. Um, The test in the law is, you know, can you understand the the, the nature of your conduct? Can you appreciate the wrongfulness of your conduct? And and that's that's the, the question. I mean, it's not like he's suffering from some sort of mental disease or defect, which renders him unable to understand that you can't get behind the wheel of the car and mow down, you know, a half dozen people and, and kill and injure dozens and dozens more. So it, once the insanity defense kind of fell apart, you were just at a point where, okay, you sit there and you listen to the various witnesses. And I don't know what the defense attorney's defense would have been other than to make sure that Brooks got a fair trial. Now that he's made the decision to do this, I, I think it's clearly in his interest to try to turn the matter into a circus. I have said this before. I mean, I appreciate that there's going to be coverage, but after after he acts up and acts up a few more times, I'm hoping maybe the, the televised portion of this, because that's what he really wants. He doesn't care if guys like Alex and I talk about it on the radio, but he, he, wants, he wants to be an international star. He wants to be on TV. He wants, I think, to hope somebody comes along and decides that they want to do a miniseries about him, just like they've done, you know, the miniseries of Making of a Murderer involving Stephen Avery or the the Dahmer, you know, miniseries, which is now number one on Netflix across the country. I think that's probably in in Brooks's mind, that's something that he'd like to achieve. And I I certainly, in recognition of the, the people who are dead because of what he did and in recognition of all the people who were injured because of what he did, hopefully we can avoid moving forward, doing anything more than we have to, to give him and allow him to extend his 15 minutes of, in this case, you know, um, infamy. Jeff, why would any judge give him the right to defend himself when it's obvious that he is not, uh, that he cannot? Well, that's, that, that that's a, 
that that's easy for us to say, but there, there's a very, very strict legal standard. And un, unless you've got, as a practical matter, unless you've got psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, expert testimony that says, all right, this person just lacks the mental capacity to defend himself, well, the, the, the system allows that to happen. Now, you can argue that that's not in anybody's interest, but when somebody insists that they're going to defend themselves, unless you can prove that they really have some sort of mental illness that is operating, that prevents them, it's not a question of is it a good decision or a bad decision. Obviously, this is a very, very bad decision. But on the other hand, you know, what does he have to lose? That's just kind of the reality. It is good that they have a jury seated. My guess is, even with his acting out and antics, my guess is this judge is going to keep this matter on track. Maybe the prosecution will scale down its witness list, things like that. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be a circus. But at some point in time, you know, even people that love going to the circus get tired of it. And I suspect that's going to happen pretty, pretty quickly with Brooks's antics. All right, when we come back, he was a tough teacher. Some students objected. Now he's been fired. We'll discuss. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Alex Crow. before you go, you know, there's some stuff that even though I don't think I'd like, I can almost, I can understand why some people might. And then there's this. This is apparently the latest craze, and it started in South Korea, but it's making its way around okay. the world. It's, it's mint chocolate okay so like mint chocolate mm. dipped in it on everything like the big like kfc started this thing where <laughs> they, they would have a mint a choc a mint chocolate dipping sauce so you could get your kfc you could get your chicken whatever and you dip it in this mint chocolate sauce to eat it I'm guessing by the tone of your voice, that's not something you would be too thrilled to try and Wouldn't take you, on. Well, would, does it sound does it sound appealing <laughs> to you? That was no right because no, I'm like, huh? No, I mean, I, not really. I guess I would try it to say that I tried it, maybe to see if there's any appeal there, but, but I can't imagine there would be chicken and chocolate. Yeah, no, mint, and not just chocolate, but mint fried fried chicken and mint chocolate. That sounds like a caricature of something other countries would think that we would develop here in the United States, yeah. like a <laughs> chocolate on top of fried chicken type thing. I'm, yeah, I'm that, surprised that originated somewhere else. No, that's the big thing: mint chocolate on fried chicken. But but also it's it's like mint chocolate on on other stuff as well. But fried chicken is the thing that's getting the, the, a lot of attention. But mint chocolate is getting piled onto burgers. Um, Stuffed into steamed buns, oh. um, like a, a hot dog with like mint chocolate. I'm what a nice piece of fish. Maybe like a nice uh, piece of salmon I with just, mint chocolate. I, I don't all, get a all big story it. in the Wall Street Journal. I was just kind of looking at this, going, "Huh." I just don't. Again, there, there's stuff that I wouldn't necessarily try myself, but I appreciate that. Okay, I understand why somebody might <laughs> might like that, but then. Then there's that. Okay, so I'm not going to put you down for the mint chocolate. We'll see either. if anyone else out there is, but uh, no, I, I don't think I, I, w- I would try that one. No, no, that doesn't work for me either. Okay, let us switch gears. In, in college, there are a lot of people go to college and they decide that they, they want to be doctors, for example, right? And, and, but the problem is you, you want to make sure that the people who want to be doctors have, have the skill set to be doctors, for for example, I'm I'm going to fairly admit, I I just I, I was I did not have the 
aptitude for a, a lot of the, the heavy-duty science classes that you needed to take to be a doctor. I, I just I, I just didn't. I wasn't wired that way. And and yeah, I did okay in chemistry and things like that, but it, it wasn't it wasn't my thing. So I appreciate that I was able to find other things in the course of my life that I did well enough to make a living at, things like that. But in in college, what they have for people who want to go to medical school is there, there's a track, and they, they build in what they call stumble courses, and stumble courses are courses that are hard, and, and it's, it's a way of weeding out potential candidates who, you know, people who want to go to medical school, but really they, they just, they, they don't have the aptitude. So there, there's a various, there's, there's several of them, and one of the most common stumble courses is something called organic chemistry. I mean, that sounds kind of scary, right? Sounds hard and scary. Well, it, okay, I, I, I've never taken an organic, organic chemistry course, but it's one of these stumble courses. And if you go for an undergraduate degree, you want to be pre-med, you, you're going to have to get through organic, organic chemistry. It's one of these, it's like parallel parking when you're going for your driver's test, back when you had to go, you know, take a driver's test. You know, it was, this is one of the ways they have of weeding you out. Okay, so organic chemistry is a stumble course. So let me tell you about a guy named Maitland Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones, he's 84 years old. He has been teaching organic chemistry for over 40 years. He taught organic chemistry for years and years and years at Princeton. He has written a book on organic chemistry. He's literally the guy that wrote the book. He retired from Princeton in 2007. New York University, you know, another prestigious university, New York University hired him. They said, look, you know, would would you come out of retirement and we would like you to teach organic chemistry to our students? And he said, sure. So he has been teaching an organic chemistry course at, at New York University for, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. He has now been fired. Okay, well, well, why why, Jeff, has he been fired? This is the guy that's, you know, been a teacher for 40 years. Did he, you know, was he sexually abusive to, to students? You know, no, no, none, none of that. He's been fired because his organic chemistry class is too hard. What happened is um, after the pandemic, you know, after we went through the, the idea of like the remote learning and stuff, Okay, NYU went back to um, went back to like in classroom teaching, and what happened is in let's see, 2020, some 30 students out of 475 filed a petition saying we we need more help. This organic chemistry is just too hard. So they made arrangements with this class, and they said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some videos out there, and we'll have some more you know instructional sort of stuff. That wasn't enough. So this year, or 2021, you had another situation where you had a bunch of students who were unhappy. They thought that this was too hard. So there was a new petition. 82 of his 350 students signed a petition asking that he be fired, demanding that he be fired, because the class was too hard. So what, what, what the professor did is he, he said, first of all, look, I, I, I've made this class easier. I, I've asked less tough questions. He said, but the problem here 
is that the kids, the students, they're just, they're not paying attention as much. He said, you know, here's the deal. He said, um, I've started to notice what he describes as a loss of focus among students, even as more of them enrolled in his class hoping to pursue medical careers. He says students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate. He said that uh, the grades fell even as he reduced the difficulty of his exams. He said the problem was exacerbated by the pandemic. He said in the last two years, they fell off a cliff. We now see single-digit scores and even zeros on some tests. So you have some of these people who want to be doctors, and they got to get through this class at NYU of all places, and they take the test, and, and they, they get a single-digit score. You know, they, they get a 9 out of 100 or whatever. And the response of the students is to blame the professor because the tests are too hard. Well, so what happens is the university, because they, they want the tuition dollars coming in and because they don't want unhappy students complaining to their parents about how, you know, you know 20% flunked, you know, this particular class, the response of the university is, to fire the professor. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I, we, we talk a lot about dumbing down things, and, and I understand there's been th- that's going on, but we're talking about a class that you got to get through in order to get to, to, to medical school. And this idea that you have a bunch of students who decide the class is too hard, and it's taught by a guy who's been teaching organic chemistry for 40 or 50 or 55 years, but now suddenly it has become too hard for the students. And so the response of the university is to essentially get rid of the professor because the classes are too hard. 855-616-1620. What does that say about the people who are going to be doctors? Is this the right way for the school to handle it? The school doesn't want to upset the snowflakes who want to, you know, go on and pursue medicine. Okay, understand all that. The school doesn't want to understand the snow, upset the snowflakes' parents who are, are paying the tab that it's probably just, you know, crazy to go to NYU or Princeton or wherever it is. But the effect of this is to say, okay, we're, we're done. Eight five, you know, we we're getting rid of the professor because the tests are too hard. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in just a moment. That is my favorite Steely Dan song. Thank you, Charlie. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, as the mother of a current surgical resident, I am here to tell you that organic chemistry is just the tip of the iceberg for these students. If they cannot handle that class and a tough professor, they have no business pursuing medicine. It only gets tougher from there. Great subject. Well, I, I mean, I guess that is that is my question. If you're just tuning in, there's this uh, organic chemistry professor who teaches at NYU, and before that he taught at, at Princeton. He's been teaching for 50 years. He wrote the textbook. He has been fired because 80-some students out of 350 petitioned to have him fired because they say his class is too tough. He says, hey, I've been, I've been teaching the same class for 40 or 50 years. Um, the problem is I, I have students. It's the current crop of students who lack focus um, I, and all these different things. He said, I've tried to make the test easier, but I got, I got people that are scoring single digits or zero. They're getting everything wrong on these tests. And so the response of the school is to get rid of the professor. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, if, if you can't pass the organic chemistry class, I, I don't, 
I don't want you going to med school. And the point is that unless the med schools are going to substantially, I guess, dumb down their standards, if you can't get out of organic chemistry in undergrad, you're, you're not you're not going to be doing very well. Jeff, I'm checking my doctors going forward. If they're NYU grads, I want a different doctor. Um, you know that. Jeff, I'm a medical college Wisconsin graduate, and I had a professor who would never give me an A no matter what I did. She reportedly told me to start over on a number of different papers and projects. She went on to become my attending physician, and I was extremely grateful to her for setting high expectations for me. It made me a better clinician. Well, I that that's that's it. And look, if this guy was some hack, if this was I don't know, some uh, assistant you know, to a professor or something that had been teaching for a year or two, and there's all sorts of problems in the class, and he wasn't communicating or she wasn't communicating well, I, I would have a different feeling. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a guy who's who, who literally wrote the book and has been teaching at Ivy League schools for decades. And, and the reason they fired him is because a handful of the snowflakes complained that the class was too hard. I mean, you know— Really, you know, um, uh, that's it, Jeff. Good, caring, um, educated doctors are overrated. We have the internet to cure us. Um, no, Jeff, I want to go to one of those doctors. Where are we going to get doctors of engineers in the future? We are in trouble. Well, I think that's it. Jeff, in high school, I had carpentry class, two grades in class A or F. Um, my mistake was, you know, building the house. It was not any good. I, I worked to get the A. Right. And look, and I, I understand. I, I went I went through, you know, undergraduate and I went to law school. There were some professors that were tougher than others. I, I get it. But it never occurred to me then when I was I've told this story before. Freshman year, my second semester, I had six A's and a D. Yeah, I had a D, and it was like in this advanced calculus class. And it was just, I, I was okay in calculus, but advanced calculus, it just wasn't my thing. And, and did it occur to me to go to the professor and start a petition saying, hey, you know, I, I struggled in that class because I just didn't get advanced calculus. It wasn't my thing. So am I supposed to go and say, okay, here, here's the deal. I want the professor fired, or maybe did it, convince me that whatever my future endeavors were going to be, maybe it didn't need to involve advanced calculus. Okay, that that was it. So so maybe if you can't get out of organic chemistry, maybe the deal is, maybe that's telling you that you should consider something other than, you know, a career in medicine. Let's talk to Bob in Kenosha. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. You know, I'm sorry, but I think that this clearly is a 21st century trend, uh, regardless of the form that it takes, whether it's a college professor or Navy SEAL training or whatever it is. Uh, Let's reduce the intensity, uh, even if it's been in place for 40 years, 60 years, 100 years. Well, yeah, I mean, no, thank, I, right. I, I mean, it, I think it, it is this, and that's that's one of the things that you know, you've got. You've got this entitlement thing that, that's out there, and it's hey, we we won't all want to have the participation prizes. And as I said earlier, this is what they call a stumble course. It is meant to be hard because it is meant to weed out people who might not be able to, you know, do the work moving forward. So it just and see, and I just don't think you're doing anybody a favor unless you're going to completely dumb down the standards to be a doctor. But if you if you can't get out of the organic chemistry class in undergraduate, you know what what does that say when you get to to med school and you're faced with even tougher sort of of choices? Maybe it tells you that you you should again 
find a different career choice. Here's one of our texters, Jeff. General uh, chemistry um, is hard. Organic chemistry is really hard. And it, it's the, you know, hard that, that makes, you know, for the great students and things like that. Um, you know, right. I think that's, the, that, that's kind of the bottom line of this. But we don't do that. And what I think is so frustrating, and what NYU did, and they really didn't even make any bones about this. They said, well, you know, if we've got, you know, if you've got twenty percent of your class, or thirty percent, or whatever the number ends up being, that are upset, think the class is too hard, and they are complaining, and they might not want to take the class because it's too hard, or they're complaining to their parents that, hey, we're wasting our tuition money, or Johnny and Joni wanted to be a doctor, and maybe these indications are that they're not going to be able to cut it. Well, okay, that's our problem because we want to continue to get the tuition dollars and we don't want the parents to be upset. Um, Wagner's rule of life number one, as one of our texters remind us, is life is tough, get a helmet. And, and maybe that's the, the test of this, but that's not how we operate anymore. We get rid of the, the messenger. In this case, the messenger is the professor who's made the point of saying, all right, let's figure out how to do this. And yeah, I, I've tried to dumb it down. I've tried to make the test easier, but it's just flat out not working. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff, I talk about this all the time. I was born in 1969. I truly believe that my generation was the last generation that was allowed to play on steel monkey bars above concrete, was able to trick-or-treat at night, had to do homework without the aid of technology, cut from school sports if we were bad. Now we have a generation that doesn't want to do the work, and we are backing them up. Are we going to do the same with airline mechanics and pilots? Yeah, you you, you gotta you gotta pass this this class to you know work on airplanes, you know, and their engines, but. Oh, I don't know. The class is too tough. You know, too many people are flunking it. So let's fire the instructor. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's just kind of how they they did it. Jeff, I am not wired for math. I tried in my studies, but it wasn't in the cards for me to get into veterinary school. I sure didn't blame my teachers. I'm a very successful dog groomer for 29 years. Parents need to teach kids a backup plan. How do you say life is hard? Life is tough. Get a helmet. Absolutely. No question about it. So just keep that in mind. You know, if it's a stumble class and you can't get through organic chemistry or whatever, I don't think the answer is to say, here, we're just going to fire the professor who's been teaching for 50 years. Maybe you just have to rethink the idea. Just saying. In, in defense of my generation, I got cut from my high school basketball team, so that was still going on when I was in high school, just, just in case you're wondering. And, and, it, and it didn't crush you. It, it didn't crush I you. I was able to make it through. You, I think you, I'm all right. Right. You were able to appreciate, well, that's it. You were able to appreciate that, okay, maybe the NBA is not for me, so I'll, I'll figure out something else. I made the switch to swimming. It was much easier without the hand-eye coordination needed. Well, right, exactly. I can't dunk a basketball. Okay, I never could dunk a basketball. I, that was not what my career was going to be, and and I wasn't going to be a doctor. I wasn't good at that, and and I, I wasn't going to be a mathematician. Like I say, advanced calculus was just. I mean, it was like the jitterbug. It just flat out evaded me, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other things that I could do. And I sure didn't go try to get the professor fired because I didn't know how to do advanced calculus. If I had done that, uh, my high school would not have had a very good basketball team. I can. There was a reason I did not make the team. Exactly. And you appreciate that. All right. Well, we're glad to have you. We're glad. I and mean, who knows if you made that basketball team, who knows how it would have turned out. 
a number of people still asking me about what's going on with your place in Florida. We, um, the, the good news, as I've said before, we, we, we're, we're about 20 minutes south of Fort Myers and 20 minutes north of Naples, right in, in the heart of where stuff hit and have a first floor condominium in it. It's, it's kind of like I would describe as a four family where, where I live, there's 65 neighborhoods and, you know, our neighborhood, just like the entire community, it, it flooded. We were very, very fortunate in, in our neighborhood, first floor or second floor, no, no flooding, no, at least in the units. So we had no, no water in the unit and a little bit of water in the garage, but not enough to get into the car. So it's, it's all good. Had somebody come down yesterday and inspect the roof, no damage to the roof, no trees down. So we were very blessed. The only problem is still no power. And their, their, their estimates are, we hope to have the power on by Friday, but it's, you know, you, you want to get the power on and you want to get the air conditioning turned on and make sure you don't have problems. But at the same time, very, very fortunate when you look at the destruction from that hurricane. I love the terms. Um, for those of you who, who haven't heard, our, our, our afternoon news person, Melissa Barkley, who is a dear friend of mine, and if you've, you've listened over the last five years that she's worked here, to some of our, our back and forth, and if it sounds like we like each other, we, we do. I mean, I just, I very much enjoy it. Then Melissa's last day is Friday, and so we, we had a brief conversation, and then I was thinking, today is my last day this week. Um, we're we're on, I'm on vacation on Thursday, Friday, back next Monday. But I was thinking, okay, maybe just I'd like to do a segment in the two o'clock hour. Just have Melissa in and we'll just, we'll chat before we we turn it over for the final Brewers baseball game of the year. And and I, I asked Alex. I said, Alex, I said, is is Melissa around? He said, well, she, she's around somewhere, but she's with HR. She's offboarding. And I'm thinking offboarding. I, I I get. I mean, this this is we we have terms for everything nowadays. I, I guess. That would be what we used to call like an exit interview or, or something like that, I guess. But it, it's now it's offboarding. Okay, you you come on board, you you now get off. I you're offboarding, I, I guess. Um, okay, um, so you know if we can hook up with Melissa, if her offboarding procedure ends, you know soon enough we'll get her on offboarding. We just have a term for everything. All right, you better get it while you can. Uh, this morning, as I was driving into work. I, I thought, well, you know, I, I've got, I, I had about a half a tank of gas. And I thought, okay, well, what I have to do in the next day, I, you know, after work today, we have to drive out to West Bend because our, our the, the gal, my, my friend's sister, Pat, who, who watches my dog, you know, she's in West Bend. So we had to take her out. We got to take Sasha out and drop her off and then come back. And then I got to get down to the airport um, on you know, tomorrow morning we're jumping on a jet, and then when we come back on Sunday, I got to drive back to West Bend and pick up the dog and all that. So I'm going to need you know a little bit of gas. I had less than a tank, of, uh, half a tank of gas, and I was thinking, okay, maybe I I probably have enough in my car to do all this, but but I think maybe I better jump on this while I can because if you haven't seen the news, I think gas prices are going to be doing nothing but going up again. Now, for a while, you know, gas prices had ratcheted down and gas was like three thirty a gallon or something like that. Well, okay, when I filled up this morning, I filled up for three ninety nine, but I think I was lucky because when I got off the freeway coming down here, the gas station was was four forty nine. But if you haven't heard, OPEC, despite being, you know, asked by President Biden not to do it. OPEC, which is, of course, the, the big oil-producing company uh, countries in, in the Middle East, OPEC has agreed to the biggest oil production cut since the start of the pandemic. The producers agreed to a plan to slash 2 million barrels a day. All right, so they're going to cut their production. Why is OPEC cutting production? Well, it's twofold. 
First of all, if you cut production, what happens when you go back to supply and demand? If you have less supply and the same demand or increased demand, costs go up. So OPEC figures this is a way that we can make more money. We can, you know, just by not producing as much as we were possibly able to produce, we can we can jack up the prices. And sooner or later, that means we will pay for that. The second effect of OPEC doing this is OPEC has decided that they want to help Moscow. So, okay, why do they do that? Well, the, the sanctions that are being imposed on on Russia because of its war in Ukraine and the war it's launched in Ukraine, which is going very badly, that that's that's limited the amount of oil that, that Moscow can ship. Okay. So what's happening now is by OPEC cutting production, they put pressure on the West and the rest of the world to ease up the sanctions on on Russia to to get more gasoline. So this is this is the Arab nations deciding that they want to, I don't know, side with Russia against the rest of the the free world and essentially indirectly support the war effort that's not going well in Ukraine, plus make more money for themselves. So do not be surprised if, I mean, I don't know if it's today or tomorrow, but if all of a sudden you start to see gas prices going back up to, you know, where they were not that long ago, you know, the $5 a gallon or something, it, it might very well be as an effect of this. So what's the answer? Well, and this is this is another situation where it, it's 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 what happens when you have certain policies. Look, some of this is beyond the control of Joe Biden. I, I acknowledge that, but we have a current administration that is hostile to fossil fuels. When when you go to oil companies or refiners and you say, "I want to put you out of business." I, I just I don't like what you are doing, and my plan is and my hope is that you are going to be out of business in the next 10 years. It is difficult to then in the same breath turn around and say, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in building a few more refineries, and I want you to you know start exploring some of this drilling that's out there to increase domestic production. You cannot have it both ways. And when you launch this war on fossil fuels— because, you know, you want everything to go electric or, or whatever, th- this is the natural effect of that. The answer, in my opinion, to high gas prices is it remains energy independence. It remains drill, baby, drill. It remains, all right, let's recognize that fossil fuels are going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And until we're in a position where we can solve all the problems that currently exist with electric vehicles. And like I say, if you had an electric vehicle in Florida right now, you'd you'd be in a lot of trouble because there's not any power in large sections of southwest Florida. But at the same time, this is the idea. You can't you, you can't simply declare war on fossil fuel manufacturers. You can't say, I, I, on the one hand, I want you to build refineries, but on the other hand, I, I'm going to do everything I can to put you out of business in the next 10 years. Can't, can't do that. And we just simply aren't ready to move away from fossil fuels right now. So is it all on the Biden administration and its war on fossil fuel companies? No, it's not all on them. But the fact that we've we've rendered these companies as persona non grata in the idea in the eyes of some of the government, that makes us more vulnerable to 
Moscow when they decide that they want to like cut back on some of the gas that they're going to produce. It makes us more vulnerable when OPEC decides that they're going to cut back on the production. The, the key is increasing our domestic production so we don't need to be dependent on, for example, OPEC. We were moving in that direction for a number of years, and, and now we're moving in the wrong direction. So, when when you when you see those gas prices that hit four fifty or five dollars, or you know, in Southern California, people are paying like six fifty for a gallon of gasoline. It's just crazy, in my opinion. It's somewhat unnecessary, and I think it's also brought about in part because of our short-sighted current government policy. So just keep that in mind when you see gasoline prices going up and up and up. We've allowed ourselves once again to become vulnerable to actions by groups like OPEC that do not have the best interests of the United States at heart. Yeah, people are already seeing the spike in gasoline prices. And like I said, I am... I filled up today for $3.99 a gallon, which is a lot more than we were paying a week ago. But for people who haven't heard, OPEC has announced that they are going to be dropping production dramatically. And the effect of that is going to be, again, it's going to be to reduce the supply of oil. And so as long as demand remains the same, which it will, prices are going to go up. This is also an attempt by the Arab countries to the Arab nations that are part of OPEC to, again, try to assist Moscow for, you know, why you want to get in bed with with Vladimir Putin in his war on Ukraine is beyond me. But that's what's happening. Jeff, I live 50 miles southwest of Rockford. Gas went up to four dollars and twenty nine cents overnight. Um, Yeah, I mean, so you you've got, um, you know, that's that is what is happening here. Jeff, I'm all for working towards renewable and clean energy, but we need to get additional capacity going like right now. Yeah, I think that's and that's kind of the point that I make. Jeff, I paid three dollars and fourteen cents in the fall two weeks ago. Now it's at least a dollar more at many more places. Right. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. If you find if you can find gasoline right now for for under four dollars a gallon, and you need gasoline, my advice would be jump on it because I, I think I think that that $4 a gallon is going to do nothing but go up. And again, I don't claim to be a, an expert on this. All I know is that when I see that OPEC says that it's going to reduce production, you know that that's going to have an impact on the oil supply that's out there. You know that's going to have effect on the amount of gasoline. But this is, again, this is the issue. We, we've made our own bed, and now we're lying in it because we were moving towards energy independence, but because, you know, the powers that be decided we want to declare war on fossil fuels. And so now, you know, we haven't built a refinery in how long. And now, you know, that we're just we've cut back on our drilling and things like that. And now we say, well, gee, why don't we have as much oil? You know, we want you to build new refineries. Well, OK, if I'm the businessman running the refinery, you know, you're telling me, Mr. Government person, that you want to put me out of business in 10 years. But at the same time, you want me to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in building a new refinery? I don't. You know, it's the problem sometimes when you you choose political candidates because they fit certain demographics as opposed to, you know, really having them vetted. You're you're seeing that in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes, who is starting to, to fall behind Ron Johnson because you know, you, you got all these tweets that are coming out. You know, Mandela Barnes, who really wasn't vetted, he was he he checked off a lot of boxes for for Democrats, and they thought this would be the perfect candidate. So he didn't really go through a primary where he was vetted 
for like a lot of his tweets and his kooky far left positions and things like that. And you had other people who were running against him were who were encouraged to, you know, just drop out, let's let's unite. And now Democrats are finding that they've united behind a candidate that is incredibly, incredibly flawed. And it, the way it's looking is going to go on to lose to Ron Johnson. Some people don't like to hear that, but I think that's what's shaping up right now. Now there's five weeks for the election, but but that's what happens when you pick a candidate because, well, okay, it's this demographic or that demographic without trying to figure out substance. That is not a problem exclusively with Democrats, though. Um, in in Georgia, and Georgia is like Wisconsin, it's one of these sort of purple states. In Georgia, you will remember that uh, they had two runoff elections after the presidential election in 2020 where Democrats won both seats. And a lot of us blame Donald Trump for for losing those two seats to Republic to the Republicans losing those two seats. Well, all right, right now one of the people who was elected to the US Senate um is is running uh, again and that would be um his last name is Warnock and he's running against Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, the former Heisman Trophy winner and successful player out of Georgia. Well, okay, this was the same sort of thing. You know, Herschel Walker from the Republican side checked off a lot of different boxes, okay? He, you know, he was a football star, you know, charismatic, well-known, all those different things. He's black. So, okay, this is a chance to have a black Republican that's elected, things like that. Well, it's turning out that, that Herschel Walker, in many respects, isn't ready for prime time. And the, the latest sort of scandal is Herschel Walker very, very aggressively pro-life. Okay, fine. Well, now there's reports that are coming out that he had a girlfriend that he, you know, paid for her abortion. I don't know if that's true or not, but there certainly seems to be at least some some level of validity to these type of claims. And I just saw the latest poll. He's now behind by like 10 points in, in Georgia. The Republican governor is going to be reelected, so it looks like there's going to be a split ticket. But but Herschel Walker wasn't vetted, and that, that's part of the problem. And you had other, I think, lots more compelling candidates who would have probably gone on and won that election in a, in a walkover, um, but but we didn't. The Republicans didn't select him. They went with Herschel Walker because he checked off some of these boxes, and now they're they're living with the consequences of that. Democrats do it. Republicans do it as well. When we come back, what would you do with the ball? Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Charlie, I feel like we should have the theme song for the U.S. Coast Guard because here's the deal. I, it's, as I've been talking about, the neighborhood where I live in, in, in Lee County, Florida, it's, it's, there's 65 neighborhoods in the community I live in, and they're, they're still in the process of trying to reduce power. Well, what happened is um, one, of the, one of my neighbors who rode out the storm down there, he and his wife were both retired from the Coast Guard. So they've been down there, and they've been giving people updates and, and things like that. Well, I mean, apparently today the, the, the power people were coming past, and what had happened was there's two transformers in our neighborhood, and the flooding had taken out both the transformers. But the, there were some trees, and we didn't have any tree damage you know, in the house or anything like that, but there was some tree damage, so there were some trees that were kind of blocking the transformers. So what the Florida Power and Light people said was, well, we're, we're you know, we're, we're not going to get involved in this. You know, the, 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 the trees got to get removed first before we'll, we'll deal with the transformers. So my, my neighbor, Mark, 
Coast Guard guy, he organized a bunch of people with chainsaws, and they went in and they removed the trees. So they cleared off the transformers, and now the word is Florida Power and Light said, okay, well, we'll try to come back later on this afternoon with and replace the transformers and hopefully get you set. So Melissa Barkley, you know, hey. it, it's it's a Coast Guard guy, you know? <laughs> yes, Coast, he's getting it done. A Coast Guard guy that, that's getting it done. And I'm sure, I'm sure after we've been without power for a week, and, and he's been down there the whole time, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's probably like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get this, we'll clear out the transformers so they can replace them. And hopefully, you know, that Speed means things people, along a little bit. Hopefully that, that will be it because they're, they're starting to, to get the power back. And that's, a week is a long time to go without power for it the sure people is. that are down there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier. You, you were like, I, I, they, they told me you were, you were offboarding and I guess that's mm-hmm. still, I love that term. Whatever it's still that happening. Is. It's still happening. <laughs> it's but, still going on. But yeah. I wanted to. Yeah. I want to invite you in because you you are going to be leaving Friday. I, I'm on vacation tomorrow and Friday, so I'm going to like, miss your big going away party and stuff like that. <laughs> but you know, we've worked together for five years, and I, I didn't I didn't want you to get out the door without me having the opportunity to uh, again just say how much I've enjoyed working with you and what what how much we're going to miss you around. Yeah, here. thank you, and I've really enjoyed working with you, Jeff. You're one of my favorite people here, and we just had a great camaraderie. I don't mm-hmm. know what it was, but every time after news, we would chit chat a little bit, and it was genuine, and I uh-huh. really, really appreciate that. I think in this business, sometimes you don't always get the genuine part, right. but with you, you're the real deal, Jeff. Well, and I think well, that's very kind of you to say. I think the, um, you know, the other thing is it, it's it's an interesting time in your career because you know you've you've had the progression that a lot of people have in, in radio or, or television. You've worked in smaller markets and you know ended up in Milwaukee, and so I, I think it's kind of interesting that you've made the the choice at this point in your life to say, okay, I'm go- I'm going to get off. I'm going to get off that that particular track and try something different. And as somebody who went from practicing law to, to doing talk yes. radio when, when I was in my early 40s, you know, I can appreciate it. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, COVID taught us something, right? Life is short. You got to try new things. I thought this is the opportunity to try something different that I really feel in my heart I'm going to be really good at and I'm going to enjoy it and just try something different. I think a lot of people think the thing they do is the only thing they can do. And I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of things you can do that you can be really good at and enjoy. And radio, I've done that for 25 years, Jeff. People look right. at me, they're like, what? Were you like five? Yeah. No, I'm 43. I got into it when I was 18. Um, and it's been a crazy, wonderful roller coaster journey. But I really felt like, all right, let's try something different. Where are some of the different places you've worked? Yeah, so I started off um, small town Iowa is where I grew up. Um, So I worked in Cedar Rapids. I worked in Dubuque. I worked in Davenport, all in Iowa. I worked in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And then at that point, I was married. I moved to the East Coast. I went back to school and I got my undergrad in communication arts. That was always something I wanted to do. And then I, uh, I, I moved back to the Midwest and I lived in Green Bay for about four years, worked up there in news radio and then moved down here. And worked in news radio for the past five years. So your your progression has been what what typically aside from the, from the time on the East Coast, mm-hmm. it, it's been what you normally see. You're starting out in smaller yes. markets and moving up to larger markets and larger markets, and you get to a certain point where there, there are, are some some of my teammates, colleagues I've worked with over the years who've you know used and and I've said this to you off the air. I'll say it to you on the air. You know that there was there was no doubt in my mind that if you wanted to move to a larger market, one of the top ten markets, you you would have no trouble doing that. They would snap you up in an instant. But that that involves, you know, making the decision to 
pick up your life and yes. move and all those type of things. And you like this area. Well, it's interesting because you do at a certain point, you get tired of moving around mm-hmm. in radio and television. You move around a lot. You get a lot of contracts. You have a lot of jobs at different stations. And at a certain point, you find a place that you can have a good work life balance and you like it. I love the Midwest. I love Wisconsin, and I knew I wanted to stay here and and try something a little different. But yeah, you're right. I think there becomes a time in your life where you kind of jump off that horse a little bit and know that you might not have the lifestyle that you want if you moved to a larger market. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And yeah. that and that's and so it's always kind of that trade off. Um, uh, people who are longtime listeners of WTMJ mm-hmm. will remember you know Sherry Preston who did yes. you know years and years ago. Sherry did something very, very similar to, to what you've done. Mm-hmm. She was on the morning news and did all that. And, you know, she moved to New York and had a very successful career, I think, with ABC News yeah. and things like that. But that involved moving to New York and that, all that that entails. Right. And I always, you know, it's funny because I always thought I'm, it from the get-go, I, I always said to myself, I want to be the best in the business. I want to, I want to work at Market One. But as I got into my 40s, if I don't have anybody to share that with, you know, if I'm going out and just like going by myself and, and doing this thing, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. Right. And I'm engaged and I want to stay in an area that feels like home. So yeah. that's well, I mean, Milwaukee is that area. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice spot where there's a little bit of everything and you have close connections to everything too. Chicago, Minneapolis. There's a nice hub where you can take a flight anywhere. You're close to your family. You're close I to mean, your family. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, no, it, it makes, it makes, as much as we're going to hate to see you go, it I makes know, eminent yeah. sense. Okay. As you look back on your career, and we, we didn't talk about this beforehand, mm-hmm. so this might be unfair to just kind of spring it with you. Is there one story or one event that, that just transcends all the others? Oh, that's a tough one. And I've thought about this too, as I was, you know, sort of leaving over the last couple of weeks. I think, you know, I think my greatest success here has been my Murrow wins. Um, that meant a lot to me to just sort of challenge myself and do the best that I thought I could do. Going to um, New York for the Murrow Awards, mm-hmm. the National Murrow Awards, that was a huge highlight of my career here. Um, I think the people, you know, we always talk about the people. Uh, it's the people that really stand out to me. Working with Eric Bilstad, he was one person that when I came on board here, I was like, I want to work with Eric because he's a great storyteller. And to be able to work under him and to work under someone that you want to be as good as, that's what it's all about. So, yeah, I'm handing the baton back to Eric now. <laughs> here you <laughs> right. go, Eric. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. well um, you're, you're leaving the industry, but you're not leaving the community, and you're Correct. just going to be a few blocks up at Marquette University. Yes. So, you can, so close by. You can come down and have lunch at the Avenue sometime and stand outside one of these I, windows and just kind of like make faces creepy, and yeah. stuff. Well, no, 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 you wouldn't be that. But I, I appreciate you spending a little bit of time. Because like you, I Jeff. say, I'm going tomorrow and Friday, and I just I didn't want to let you get oh, out the door without saying publicly once again how much I have enjoyed working oh, with you over the too, years. Oh, me too, Jeff. And I my, really have. My wife, Fran, says the same thing. She just adores God, you, as you God. know. So oh, just adores I know. You. I love you guys. Mm. <laughs> All right. Melissa okay. Barkley. She's not out the door yet. She Well, you don't have a show today, do you? No, no, no show today. the Brewers game. Tomorrow and Friday, and that's Tomorrow it. Tomorrow and yeah. Friday. Tune in for the final days of Barkley. And I always tell the story, and we, we told it the other day. I just, I felt so bad. For some reason, when you first started, I just had this mental block, <laughs> and I kept calling you Elizabeth <laughs> I Barkley. And I and it, it was just, it. I thought, I kept thinking, this woman's going to think that I'm dissing her. And it wasn't. It was just. No. Like, it was just like, I don't know. I I, I have this like brain thing going yeah. on. It so. was funny because you would, you would call me that and I would, 
And I would kind of stare and I'd be like, I'm just going to go with it. Right. Because I know the crazy man. He's not no, really trying to pimp me. He's not just, at all. It's no. just kind of like this is, you know, he's losing yeah. his mind. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. Melissa, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. That is the theme song of the Coast Guard. And that is my tribute because my neighbor down in Florida who took it upon himself to say, hey, the reason we don't have power in our neighborhood is there's trees and branches all over the transformers, which are shot. And the electric company said, well, we're, we're, we're not going to clear the trees and branches, so we're going to pass up your neighborhood. He organized the team, got chainsaws, cleared off the trees and branches. And now the word is that they're going to try to get true transformers in our neighborhood and maybe power over the course of the next few hours. That. That's why I love the Coast Guard today. Okay, we only have a couple minutes. Our number is 855-616-1620. If you haven't seen this, um, Aaron Judge, who plays for the New York Yankees, yesterday he hit his 62nd home run. This is the American League. He passed Babe Ruth for the American League home run record. He did it um, in Texas. All right, what happened is there's so, I mean, this is this is a big deal. So the ball was caught by a guy named Corey Yeomans, who is a Texas Ranger fan, but he was positioned in just the right place. Matter of fact, if you look at the video, there's kind of this scramble, and one guy tries to get the ball and falls onto the field. But anyways, Corey Yeomans catches the ball. All right, so there's no question this was the ball he caught. Um, Security has to escort him out. He gets the thing verified. His wife is posting stuff on Facebook going, that this is my husband. So the question is, okay, what what happened? So now he's got this ball. There's one of the memorabilia dealers down there that immediately offers him $2 million. That's 2M as in million dollars for the ball. Right? So he's got a lot of different choices. He could keep it for himself. He could give it to Aaron Judge. He could send it off to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He could sell it for $2 million or probably more. All right, we've only got a couple minutes. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right, you, you've got this. You Right, somebody's correct. Right, Babe Ruth had 60, Roger Maris had 61, so this is 62nd, okay? Right, but it, it's it's a famous baseball. He's already been offered $2 million for it. Really quick, if you were the guy that caught the ball yesterday, what do you do? Do you keep it? Do you give it to Aaron Judge? Do you say, hey, this is this is $2 million bucks, or it's $5 bucks? 855-616-1620. What do you do with it? Let's see. Jeff, he's an idiot if he doesn't take the $2 million. What would you do with it if you've got it? Jeff, I would sell it. (laughs) Jeff, I would sell it. Okay, 855-616-1620. If you you were the one that caught that ball, it's worth at least $2 million. At least you got an offer for $2 million. What do you do? Jeff, sold. Okay, let's take one more break, then we'll be back to discuss. You've caught the ball Lots of op- different options. You could keep it forever. You could keep it for a while. You could donate it. You could give it to Aaron Judge. Or you could take the money and run. When we come back, I'll tell you what I would do. Stick around. Go on, take the money and run. Go on. Yeah, in the immortal words of the Steve Miller band, take the money and run. One of our texters says, Jeff, I, originally I thought I'd give it back to him, but then you said he got offered $2 million bucks. I'd sell it and retire. I don't know if two million is enough to retire on, but it's enough to get a good start on it. Tom, Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Jeff. I take that uh, money and run. I'm uh, 81 years old, and I can use the money. You can have the baseball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that, that's uh, th- thanks. I mean, I guess. Look, and, and I appreciate. There's all this kind of noble stuff out there. I got a couple of people texting me saying, "Oh no, no, this is this is an important piece of history." And yeah, yeah, it is. But uh, all right, you know, all right. If if Aaron Judge wants to buy it, or the New York Yankees want to buy it, now I, I actually I might give them a discount. Some people are say, "Oh, you just you, you take the highest bidder." I, I might give them a discount and say, "Okay, look, I've got an offer for two million New York Yankees. You you guys, you if you want this ball, um, tell you what, I'll I'll give you a little bit of a discount, one point seven five million, and the, that it's yours. You know, cash on the barrel head. Um, you know. Jeff, um, an average listener doesn't have that kind of money that you and Judge have. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, I'm taking the money and I'm running. Jeff, I would give the ball to Aaron Judge. Money isn't everything. Well, I think that's a noble that's a noble cause, but I'm just not there. Jeff, I think the ball should go to Aaron Judge. I would offer to sell it to him for $2 million. He can certainly afford it. Well, yeah, that's it. Like I say, I might even give the New York Yankees, I'm, I might give them a little bit of a discount because, you know, I, I think that's it. Jeff, it's not mine. I really believe I'd give it to the rightful owner. Well, no, it is yours. That That's how once those baseballs go in the stands and you, you catch it, it's it's yours. Jeff, I'd start a bidding war around the $2 million mark, and I would go from there. Jeff, I'd consult a tax expert before doing anything other than keeping it. Well, okay, here, here's what the tax expert's going to tell you. You're, you're going to sell the ball. You're going to have to pay taxes on the ball, and then you're going to have to keep all the money after that. And, and you, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's it, because that is the good thing. There, there's not too many great things about paying taxes, but if you're paying taxes, say, on a, on a ball that you just caught and then you sold for $2 million, the good thing is that you got $2 million. Jeff, I would ultimately sell it, although I might hang on to it and see if it appreciates in value. Um, right now, without attaching value to the event, it's just an $8 piece of horsehide. There may be a problem if somebody breaks the record again, though, Well, which is why, you know, you... I mean, records are made to be broken, and it's why you kind of try to strike, I think, while the iron is hot. Bottom line is, maybe this makes me this this, this heartless capitalist, but if I happen to have been the guy that caught the ball, I there's no question in my mind I would be celebrating, I would be happy, and then I'd have it on the market. Okay, I am out of time. I'm on vacation tomorrow and Friday, back Monday, 12 noon, when we do this all again. 